Stay hungry, stay foolish. Do you want more from work than just a paycheck or a title? Are you ready to manifest a work life rooted in joy, purpose, and contentment? Our guest today is a career expert, and she will guide you on a self-discovery journey to bridge the gap between your spiritual life and your work and help you bring intention and satisfaction to your professional life. In Working Whole, she shares eight principles that will free you to be inspired and joyful in your life and work callings. When we commit to living our beliefs in these eight core areas, humility, surrender, discipline, gratitude, connection, love, power, and patience, we can work authentically and live fulfilled. Our guest shares tips and tools for handling the expectations, choices, conflicts, challenges, and opportunities we face in our work life. We welcome author of Working Whole, How to Unite Your Spiritual Beliefs and Your Work to Live Fulfilled. Courtney Whitehead, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show. It's such an important book, Courtney. As you say, many of us feel unhappy with our lives. Even when we have many material goods, we're not taught how to achieve a fulfilled life. Instead, we're taught how to pursue a career. It's interesting because I have two sons that are in high school. So I have 10th and, and 12th graders right now. And so obviously I'm trying to guide them in the ways of the world, how to how to head off to college, university, and how to think about their careers in the way that we're traditionally taught to do them. So there's a process in navigating both spaces. But what I hope I'm doing, and parenting can also keep you honest about whether or not you're living what you believe. What I hope I'm doing is also helping them unite who they truly are and think beyond just the constructs of at the end of this, I need to get a job and have a career and titles and make money. And they do ultimately need to do that, just like we all do. We all need to pay our bills and, and figure out things in what I'll just call the real world, for lack of better word, though it's no more real than the spiritual world. We need to find a way to merge those two spaces. And, and so what led me to write the book is spending the bulk of my career in corporate America within quite high achieving environments and still seeing people that are incredibly uninspired, that, that reach and achieve all the things they thought would matter. They, they, they figure out how to make plenty of money. And it does provide them security, and that's a very real thing. I don't want to diminish that and make things feel too soft. But at the same time, there's this element of, am I really doing what I'm meant to be doing here on this earth? Am I really enjoying my shot at this life? And oftentimes that answer is no. And so what I do for a living is spend time helping people reconcile how to bring their full self, I'll say, into their work lives in a way where they can still meet their needs, but also achieve fulfillment. And I wanted to highlight one thing, because you mentioned beliefs in the book a lot. And this is not a religious book for those who are listening and may go, oh, here we go with religion, because not everybody wants to hear that. And you call that out and you're very realistic in the book as well. Like you just said, we still have to pay a mortgage or pay the rent or whatever it may be. We need to do those things, but we can still at least have a framework to find fulfillment. I love the question you pose at the start of the book. If we were stuck on a desert island, would we want a bucket or a well? 
That analogy essentially is a great starting point for thinking about what should I be giving attention in my life? What should I be spending my time working on and perfecting? And it has career implications. And so in my mind, the bucket represents how we just wander around achieving things, trying out new careers, thinking that the next job or the next company is going to be the one that is actually more fulfilling. But really what we have going on is a game of chance. We're, we're, we're focusing our attention on our career and on movement in the rare chance that we can wander around with our bucket and maybe find water. And if we do, we certainly are prepared to scoop it up, but we may never find it. And that's the reality. But if we focus on our spiritual beliefs, and by this, I mean core values, which you listed out, if we focus on really living humility, really living surrender, living love, patience, as an example, that focus is essentially the well of where we know fulfillment, where we know happy living um, can exist for us. So the real question is just how can we live it? We can point our work towards essentially the well. How do I get the water out of the well? And that is just instinctively going to be more efficient than wandering around with our bucket, just hoping we stumble upon what we really want. And and so if there's anything that I hope, and I know we're going to dig deeper into the book, but if there's anything that I hope the book gets across, it's that spend your time and energy here. Spend your time and energy focused on whether or not you are truly living what you believe and what you may have already brought in and integrated in your personal life. Make sure you are bringing that into your work life and then see where it leads you versus starting with, I'm going to launch a new job search because I know I'm unfulfilled because there's a good chance it may not lead you where you really want to go. I love that idea because We covered a few weeks ago, we covered a show called The Polymath, and we were talking about how a polymath or somebody who has what seems like random hobbies, they seem like they're random to somebody who's in a career and they're looking at uh, Aiden, for example, they go, oh, he does this and this and this, and it seems random and and disconnected. But to me, as the person doing them, they're so connected because I'm passionate about many of those things and they're very, very connected to me. And I thought if we even got that across to somebody that you can find purpose and fulfillment, even while putting bread on the table and providing very well for your family, there's still ways you can do it, but, but you can find it somewhere. And you mentioned there some of the core values. Let's get started with humility. This one was a real difficult one for me because humility is often seen as a weakness, but it's such a strong thing. And I remember reading this before, I think it was Ken Blanchard. And it was like, if you don't blow your own trumpet, others will use it as a spittoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there's a dilemma in there because many of us think that if we're humble and we don't take as much credit for work as we can, leadership will overlook us for promotions or for bonuses or for increases in pay, etc. It is a real challenge. It's funny because I do a lot of work prepping people for interviews and and. Obviously, it's important to own your accomplishments and make sure you're comfortable with self-promotion. Sometimes, in full disclosure, it is the most arrogant or egotistical people that end up getting the job because in a brief interview, that's not as disarming as much as it is exciting or feels like energy or confidence. And so there's a real dilemma in the business place about what is the place for humility. Every company says they want the humble leader. And then that is not always the way that you experience what helps you get ahead in the business world. And so 
what I wanted to do with this chapter, and, and I hope that it achieves that, is to redefine humility just a little bit. My belief is that humility is not about cowering in the corner or being the quietest person in the room, that what it's actually about is feeling an equality of your soul with every other soul. It's almost that uh, namaste principle that's that's become very popular. And, and I think I may even reference it in the book, which is um, the spirit in me bows to the spirit in you. And so regardless of religion, this is just the concept that we are all equal, of equal value, of a high value. Everybody's on the same plane. And what that means when people traditionally think of humility is that they don't think they're better than others. And and for most people, particularly someone who might be interested in this book, because they're probably already trying to live these core values in other areas of life, not thinking you're better than other people is what we embrace wholeheartedly when we, when we consider ourselves humble or where we want to live a spiritual life. But the flip side of that is never thinking you're below anyone. And though a person might instinctively say, I don't think I'm below anyone, if you walk into a, a conference room and you see the CEO and you don't feel like you're a peer to him or her, that is an example of feeling a little below. And so I'm not saying that you overstep hierarchy or that you don't respect leadership levels and things like that in an organization. It's obviously important to do that. But there is an internal disposition in humility that when you truly embrace it, not only are you not above anyone, but you're not below them. And that means you can advise them. It means you can engage in conversations on a peer level where you can be a thought leader. It means that you're confident to explain what you have done and what your expertise is because you know it's equal to everyone in the room. And so when humility is truly embraced, it creates a different sort of confidence. It creates a different sort of what I'll call executive presence, which is a phrase that's used a lot in my world. And it you exude it, not because you're forcing it, not because you're trying to promote yourself, but because you are just confident and adding a lot of value and feeling very senior to the people around you because you are not intimidated. And that energy really stems from real humility. And so what the chapter is trying to help people do is pause and think about, am I really living what this means? In what places am I not? Where am I feeling a little lesser than someone and, and not putting my best self and my best talents forward? You know, one of the things that dawned on me while reading this chapter was I love the concept of Spaceship Earth and the idea that on Spaceship Earth, there's no passengers, there's only crew. So we're all equal. We're all on this voyage together. So it's one of these stories that you say we should we should create for ourselves. It's one of my beliefs or core values that I approach it that way. But oftentimes you may hear people in businesses, for example, complaining about leadership and, oh, leadership treats us like crap, or maybe it's an auntie or an uncle or a mother or father, whatever it might be. But then equally, they may treat somebody on the street or somebody on a bus or they might treat them like crap. And you kind of go, well, if you're going to point the finger, there's three pointing back at yourself. But I love this idea of integrating humility where we see everybody as a peer from the lowest ranked to the highest billionaire, whoever you meet, they're the same in your view, because that then creates everything circular, that you treat them one way and then they'll treat you the same. I wanted to ask you this, in, in the workplace, are you seeing a trend, a true trend from leaders in hiring people that are humble? 
I'm absolutely seeing a trend towards hiring what I will call the servant leader. Um, that that concept is very trendy right now. So the, so the leader that empowers their people, the leader that steps back, and there is inherent humility in being able to be that sort of leader. And so I'm seeing that trend. There's still the need to be able to say I versus we when I is true. And so what I am trying to coach people on is making sure that they are not choosing a definition of humility to believe in. That means that they have to be quiet or take a step back or afraid to take ownership. It's oftentimes the people who are the greatest servant leaders, in my opinion, that really struggle with the I and we concept, that really don't take credit for the work that they ultimately did. And so there is still work to do in being able to take credit, because I do think the corporate environment still needs you to be able to do it. Um, It will still hinder you if you can't take ownership of the things you legitimately did and the role that you played. And oftentimes when you tease it out, there's a really important leadership piece that you can own um, as long as you're comfortable doing it. And some of that is making sure you feel very even to the CEO and Oprah (laughs) and whoever else seems very important to you. If you truly feel equal to those people, and that's a hard concept. I might have to ask myself, do I feel like Oprah today? And I don't always feel like Oprah. I'm sure Oprah doesn't feel like Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so it's not, it's not easy to do. And I, and I don't think none of these are, none of them are perfect. Nobody arrives at a place where they fully uh, walk into every room confident and, and spiritually fulfilled. Uh, but but it's important to keep that concept in mind um, because you'll either lean on fake egotism that is doing self-promotion and pushing out things and maybe even taking more credit than you should, or you will underplay it. And so where the balance lies is in embracing humility. You talk about conflicts throughout the book, and there are many, and you bring them to the fore. And, and I mentioned humility being a dilemma, but the next one was one I certainly struggled with, and it's the one about surrender. Surrender, I, I think I say in the book, is by far the hardest for me. I think for lots of people, different ones will strike them as, as harder for a variety of reasons. But For me, surrender, I have to go back to time and time again and um, reread my own chapter even (laughs) to make sure that I stay grounded in, in the idea that I am not getting caught up in life, in in the drama of life, that, that I'm actually letting the experience unfold, letting the experience be a pleasant experience. Um, and my, my focus of the surrender chapter is really about that. It's about making a conscious decision to let the experience of life unfold. And that's easier said than done. I am certainly a type A person. I, I work in high achieving environments where, with lots of other type A people. <laughs> so, I, so I have that, that energy around me and, and it takes a reminder, um, not just in my work life, in my life overall as, as a parent, as a wife, as a friend, as a human being, um, to keep reminding myself that if I focus my attention on um, the things that give me tension, 
the things that are actually out of my control, but I can pretend like they are in my control, uh, that it creates worse days, which creates worse weeks and months, but that in just relaxing, I can have the experience of saying, what is this really? Can I take a step back and look at it? Is there something funny or amusing? And quite often it is, especially in a work environment. There, there's an enormous amount of dilemmas that we stress about that really, if we took a step back, could be could be comedy episodes of their own <laughs> because there, there's always so many peculiar personalities and things that come up. Um, but the surrender chapter is actually that's the basis of it is really asking asking the person reading it to think about whether or not their attention and focus is oriented around, for lack of a better word, what I'll call the drama of life or whether it's on the experience. That's a really important thing you brought up, the drama of life. And you talk about Shakespeare saying life is the stage. And here you talk about Freitag's pyramid. It'd be great to share this because I found this really helpful to pitch yourself as you are in a play or a drama or a comedy as you say. Yes. And you are the writer, director, casting agent. Mm-hmm. You are all those things in your own life. You're not just a passenger in your own play. You're not just somebody else's scripted you into it. You need to be in control of it. And it'd be great to share Freitag's Pyramid to set that up because we can look through that lens then for the rest of the interview. So there's an overarching theme in the book, particularly in the first half of the book, of what sort of show of life do you want to be living? And so each chapter aligns to some extent with the creation of that show. And sometimes you're playing the role of show creator. Sometimes you're the director. Um, Later in part two, you're actually the actor. That's when you're really showing up in the office, showing up in the life and getting things done. But part one is saying there's decisions to be made in life and how we focus our attention, how we choose to show up creates a very different show. So if I take uh, part one, if I take the first chapter of Humility, The question there is about what is our show supposed to be about? And so that's the big picture. Is the show about everyone? Is the show about me? The second chapter in Surrender, it's the first time that I start talking about the pyramid, but the pyramid actually gets used a little bit later. Um, The second chapter, Surrender, is saying, okay, if we're in a show, is this show a drama or is it a comedy? And the difference between it being a drama and a comedy is where should we focus our attention? So if you think about a drama, I'm paying all the attention to the conflict. I'm wondering if someone's going to get killed, if they're going to lose their career, if if danger is going to befall them. And that is the orientation under which I watch a drama or a thriller. Um, and I enjoy it. There, there's great intense anticipation. There's sometimes relief. There's sometimes sadness. I, I know Grand Game of Thrones has been a big thing. Obviously, that's a huge drama and people have loved it. But when you watch a comedy, you come at it with a completely different orientation. Um, and that's really the metaphor for this surrender chapter, which is in a comedy, I know things will be fine. I have faith that things will work out okay in the long run. So no matter what's happening in an episode, if it's, if I know it's a comedy, I'm not taking it that seriously. I'm just watching it. I'm amused by what the character's doing. I'm laughing as it goes along. Um, and that is a different show. And, and we get to choose, even though it sometimes feels like life picks for us. 
what I hope the book helps lay out is that there's a lot of things in life that we get to choose based on how we focus. And so those first three beliefs, humility, surrender, and discipline, which I know we're going to get to next, those beliefs are aligned with, let's just decide what the show is. But then the next five are aligned with Freytag's pyramid. And Freytag's pyramid starts with the exposition, which is really where you get your focus. It next has rising action. It has a climax, so, so where the conflict is. And it has falling action, and it has ultimately a conclusion and its end. And I use that for the last five beliefs to show how when we live them, they help us have a model for how we are supposed to be experiencing conflicts. Um, so we, we anchor the show in what it's about, and then we think about how we move through those episodes. And so as we go through each individual chapter from here, uh, I'll just be referencing back where it fits into Freytag's pyramid and how to think about that art. You mentioned there discipline, and that's one. I'm a huge fan of discipline. You know, I came from a professional sports background, and in sport, you have three types of player. You have a talented player, and then you have a disciplined player. And then the goal of a coach is to make the talented disciplined. That's the ultimate goal. I benefited from not being overly talented, but being extremely disciplined, which is a gift that I can bring anywhere. And I brought it to everything I do now. But oftentimes when I say that, or I say, one thing I want to ensure is that I make sure my children are disciplined. People always look at me as if I'm a disciplinarian because it's seen as a <laughs> negative it's seen as a negative thing. Yes. But what, what I mean is I want them to be able to delve into their right hemisphere and pull out something extremely creative and then able to throw it to the left hemisphere to enable to bring it to life because it's like you you said when you're writing this book you picked the time five to seven a.m every morning and you made that happen but it was all stuff that you'd been creating for years experience thoughts etc i love your definition of discipline here you say discipline is a belief in the unlimited human potential to grow and evolve being disciplined means we have the ability to align our habits in the human world with what our soul desires. Discipline allows us to grow into future work callings that are beyond our present capabilities. I love that because that's what it's about. Discipline brings potential forth. So it's absolutely essential to everything we create. It is. It's essential. The first three beliefs anchor your entire life. And so it's important to embrace discipline. And as I say that, I realize that people have an enormous amount of negative association with the word discipline, mostly because it's become to be associated with willpower. It's become this, are you the kind of person that can make yourself do stuff? And if you're not, then you should have shame around it. People think about discipline typically when they're thinking about losing weight or or even writing a book. I should have written this by now. I've had this idea in my head and I haven't gotten it done. And what I hope this particular chapter will help people think about, again, is, a, is the redefining of the term, is thinking about discipline only as the potential to grow and be whoever I might be but am not now. And that includes being disciplined. If you think you're not disciplined now, it's embracing discipline that will help you embrace the idea that you could be. So to explain that a little bit more, the, the chapter has a metaphor about a lot of who we think we are comes from what we see ourselves do over and over again. So if I see myself get up every morning and write, then I think I'm a writer. If I see myself run, then I think I'm a runner. 
And that applies to the bad things as well. If I see myself eating junk food, if I see myself starting stuff and stopping it, then I internalize the idea that that's who I am. And where we lose our power to change those narratives is where we believe in the idea of a fixed identity. When we lock in on this is who I am, I I can candidly say that there was a large period of my life where I believed I was someone who couldn't complete things. It seems odd now to friends and family because I've written a book and because I have a career where clearly I have to be very disciplined. But I spent a lot of time thinking I'm just not disciplined. I just can't get it done. I'm an all or nothing kind of person. I start and stop. And a lot of people share this internal fear and shame around discipline. And where the breakthrough comes is where we actually start saying, if when I truly want to do something, when my soul truly wants to do it, I can make a new change because I don't think I'm unchangeable. And this is a decision just like the other chapters, just like deciding that I'm going to have a drama instead of a comedy. Um, Discipline helps you decide that I'm going to be the kind of character that can become very different than who I previously was. And so I say that lightly as if it's just easy to flip a switch and decide I can be someone else if I want to be. But it's not for people, for for safety reasons, even though, to be clear, who who I was when I thought I couldn't change was by no means perfect, quite flawed and and causing a lot of pain for myself and sometimes for others. But I knew that person. I was comfortable with that person. And, And that feeling runs deep. There is a close tie to the familiarity of who you think you are. And so either through your spiritual path, whatever that might be, or just from spending time on this concept in meditation or or in your journaling, it requires a breakthrough to make amends with discipline if you haven't already, to switch more into that growth-oriented mindset to say, even if I think, there was certainly a time I thought I could not be a writer, I'm not good enough. But the discipline helps you work and work and work and then see yourself in a different way. So let's hold that in our mind, right? And firstly, I'd like to say this because you touched on it there. You further subdivide the idea of a comedy into a variety show or a sitcom because both have very different characteristics. You mentioned potential there. You mentioned the ability to evolve for all of us, and we should always be evolving. The difference between a variety show and a sitcom brings this to life. I'd love if you shared this. A variety show... You're expecting to recognize the characters. Um, They're either a celebrity or someone famous when you see the different skits, um, or they're just a character of a politician or a type of person. And the actors that play out a variety show, they keep those characters locked in. They're not meant to change. They're not meant to evolve. They're just meant to be recognizable to you so that you can watch the show and know where they're going with this skit right away. And that's the way that sometimes we relate to ourselves. We lock ourselves in to these characters and they may be multidimensional and and deep, but they're the same over and over again. And we keep repeating the same patterns, sometimes the same mistakes. Uh, We keep 
having the same preferences because we want to remain recognizable to ourselves and our family and our friends. Um, and we're locked into this point of view where we're living in a variety show. Um, but choosing to live in a sitcom is to let the characters completely evolve. The goal of a sitcom is to just stay on the air as long as possible. So they're happy to be on the air for 10 years if, if viewership maintains. And that means a lot of evolution of the main characters. If you think of your favorite sitcom, particularly if it's been on for a while, there's probably a very different persona of one of the main characters. So so as an example, I happen to like The Big Bang Theory quite a bit. And if you watch that, the main character who, who's Sheldon on this show starts out being rigid, being unable to have social interactions, not wanting to date, not wanting to have any interactions. And by the end of the show, he's married and thinking of having children. And this is a seismic change in this particular character. And, and we can name all the famous sitcoms and, and typically this happens. And so that flexibility towards life is essentially a metaphor between how do you want to show up? Are you able to harness discipline in a way that lets you be free to become whoever you might be destined to be, even if that's someone very different from what you think you're capable of and who you are right now? I love this idea of bringing forth potential and a line really resonated with me. You said who we think we are is largely reinforced by what we see ourselves doing repeatedly, which is where habits come in. Our identity is shaped by a series of behaviors that signal messages about who we are to ourselves. And I really love this idea of you are scripting your own character. So you're the one who puts it in certain settings. You're the one who invites in other characters that crew you surround yourself with becomes so important, but also what you see yourself doing. So if you're watching your own show, what am I doing every day? Because those signals coming back to me inform my behavior, which inform my reality. That story we tell ourselves is so important. The self-talk we have going on in our heads really does inform us all the time. Let's share an exercise here because there's an exercise you introduce where you ask us to consider what are our titles and traits. So this is a, a fairly easy exercise. If you just take out a journal or, or grab an app that creates good lists, try to actually capture what you think your traits are. So you can start with your job titles. You can start with, I'm a mother, I'm a parent. Um, you can start with Anything that you think helps someone know something about you. I, I, I eat dark chocolate every day, which is true. I can put that in there. <laughs> but as you look at the list, once you get it completed and really try to make it long, the goal is as long as possible. Grab everything because you're a complex person. But then spend some time reviewing how much of the list is actually conditional on something you are doing or experiencing. So if I if I say as an example, I'm a wife, that is conditional on the presence of my husband, on the being a husband, um, which at some point in life, one of us won't be here. Um, and so titles change, even the ones that are very central to our identity. Um, certainly job titles change. I work with a lot of CEOs that, that retire and then they have to reconcile who I who am I if not a CEO? Who am I if not my inbox filled with emails, if people aren't asking for my advice or my decisions. Um, and all of those things require flexibility in our personality to say, I can actually be someone very different. I can become someone who never eats chocolate, though I don't 
really desire to do that. But if I, <laughs> if I did, <laughs> I can be versus thinking I can't be. It's hardwired in me. There's nothing that truly is. That's a spiritual perspective to allow yourself to flow and, and be a being that's devoid of that. That there's this is a little bit of an aside, but it's come up in my mind a lot. Um, the term being authentic is used quite a bit these days. And a lot of people struggle to figure out what does that mean? Who is the authentic me and how do I bring that to bear? And what I would say is that it's less about putting on something or showing the world something that's authentic. It's actually about taking down some of the fixed identity, fixed beliefs that we have that don't allow us to just be. And so this concept is all tied together. It's, it's not as simple as deciding I'm going to start a diet or I'm going to start getting up early and doing things. It's not about forcing habits. It's about believing that you can move in that direction, that you are free to change in, in sometimes dramatic ways and needing to do that first before you can even get started. The next belief is built on the foundation of the first three and it's gratitude. And I, you really helped me reframe my view of gratitude because I really made the connection between gratitude and script writing, my experiences. So you mentioned there, Courtney, Courtney eats chocolate. And I always think I'm watching an episode of your show, for example, or Friends. I'm looking at that and I'm spotting <laughs> character traits, but what do I want to be important to that person? So if it's Chandler and Friends, where do I want to shine the spotlight? that brings attention to his traits or his habits, etc. If I'm actually the director of my own show, I'm going to shine a light on those things. And by shining a light on them, I'm going to bring them more and more into my experience. This is the first one that utilizes Freytag's pyramid. So the idea of, a, of an episode and thinking of the days of our lives as just episodes we run over and over again. And how are we going to think about that? And so gratitude is linked to the exposition. So essentially to the start of any story. And in that, a writer or even the director focuses on how do I want to start a story? Where do I draw the attention? What is the context that's important? If, if anybody's ever watched Law and Order, you, you always know from the very beginning because it starts with music that's ominous and it starts with showing you people having an argument and then ultimately there's some sort of crime. And that's the beginning before they jump into the rest of the show. And so I think of gratitude as how we anchor the context of our lives. And the truth of our lives is that good things happen, bad things happen. And oftentimes people only use the term gratitude to think about what's happening that's good in my life. So it's very focused on, can I pull out the things that are good, um, which can be hard to do in certain phases of life. Frankly, if you have a job that you're working that is soul crushing, there's certainly other things to be grateful about, but that might not be where your mind is, where your focus is. And so I want to broaden the concept of gratitude, in my opinion, exponentially, because in giving our lives context, in constantly training ourselves to pull in information that helps us know, am I rich? Am I poor? Am I healthy? Am I not? That requires context. Most of us I'd say even unfortunately so, live in a bit of a homogeneous bubble where we tend to see people that have the same socioeconomic status as us, where we tend to interact with people that are going through the same things. And that creates a lot of what can bring up envy, what can just create a lot of comparison, and what can throw our 
view of context of our lives completely off versus if we spent time really saying, is the country I live in, how is the lifestyle comparing to other places? Um, who's experiencing pain and what is that like? And really digging deep on what's happening for other people. And in doing so, it helps you appreciate your own life. I find that I used to avoid negative news stories or I would avoid understanding more deeply what's happening in situations that are unpleasant because I thought they would they would bring down my day. They would create the opposite of gratitude. But it's actually in pulling in that context. And I get into this a little bit more later in part two, but it's actually in pulling in that context and redefining gratitude as I want to have a different perspective about the value of my life, the value of my health, the value of my experience, the value of the job that I'm able to have, that you can anchor yourself much more deeply in gratitude. I loved your dominant hand exercise. I thought about this and it's really helpful, this exercise, when you're having a bad day or something happens to you or somebody's ill or whatever, that you can actually meter it compared to somebody else. There's always somebody else worse off. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's schadenfreude, but you can actually position it well and go, actually, you know what? I know this crap happened to me, but I don't have it that bad. So it's just one exercise. Plenty of people experience a lot of physical pain. And so this exercise grounds you in thinking about if you have a lack of pain, how important it is. Um, And essentially, it's to take a moment and really think about your right hand or your dominant hand, so so your left hand, if that's the one you use most often. And then imagine how much pain you are feeling in that hand. Basically spend time sending your, sending your thoughts there, seeing how would I rate the pain in my hand? Is it a zero? Is it a one? Is it a two? Is it a 10 even? For some people it is. Then once you get that number, slowly thinking about what does the next number feel like? So for me, right in this moment, I'm not experiencing any pain. So I would put it between a zero or a one. And then spending time saying, what does a two feel like? What, what's then a three? Really deciding what's the difference between a two and a three? How about a four? How about a five? And slowly working all the way up until you get to a 10, where you have enough pain in that hand that you would welcome someone to amputate it. I mean, it is absolutely excruciating. Whatever you plan to do right now, well, if you're going to type on your keyboard or answer a text, that would be absolutely impossible. Um, there's excruciating pain in your hand. Um, and the fact is that people live at eights, at nines, at tens. P- people experience that daily in their hands. People don't have uh, their dominant hand, um, either through trauma or they were born without it and they move through life, figuring out how to open doors and turn on lights and do all kinds of things that we do and give no thought if you happen to have an able dominant hand. And I realize not everyone does. And so that's an example of how you might ground context more deeply, how you might spend the rest of your day every time you touch something thinking, wow, this is a privilege. It's not a given. And that will change your day. Those orientations towards what you're not having to endure or experience is, in my opinion, a much deeper level of gratitude than just saying, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my health. 
which I can just say generally, and I am grateful for those things. But when I get into the minutia of really thinking about people don't have it and what does that mean? And can I keep that in my mind more during the day? It's game changing. One of the beliefs is awareness. And awareness is something that's so intertwined with gratitude. And I love the way you put these together. And awareness is that idea of spotting those things that you should be grateful for. But I thought of something that happened in my life, and I'd love to share it with you because you shared so much in this book. And it's this idea of when you're a father, when you're a new father, a new parent, the trials of that and the lack of sleep and the, you know, you and your partner perhaps not wanting to change the nappy and this kind of pretending you're asleep and you didn't hear the baby (laughs) crying (laughs) and it wants a nappy changed. But there was a poem that actually changed my life here and my whole concept of spending time with my children and seeking out those moments because I'm not going to always have them. And I, I'd love to share it with you here. It's, it's a poem called The Last Time. And it goes like this. From the moment you hold your baby in your arms, you will never be the same. You might long for the person you were before when you have freedom and time and nothing in particular to worry about. You will know tiredness like you never knew it before. And days will run into days that are exactly the same, full of feedings and burping nappy changes and crying, whining and fighting, naps or lack of naps, it might seem like a never-ending cycle. But don't forget, there is a last time for everything. There will come a time when you will feed your baby for the very last time. They will fall asleep on you after a long day, and it will be the last time you will ever hold your sleeping child. One day you will carry them on your hip, then set them down, and never pick them up that way again. You will scrub their hair in the bat one night, and from that day on, they will want to bathe alone. They will hold your hand to cross the road, then never reach for it again. They will creep into your room at midnight for cuddles, and it will be the last night you ever wake to this. One afternoon, you will sing the wheels on the bus and do all the actions, then never sing them that song again. They will kiss you goodbye at the school gate. The next day, they will ask to walk in alone. You will read a final bedtime story and wipe their last dirty face. They will run to you with arms raised for the very last time. The thing is, you won't even know it's the last time, until there are no more times. Even then, it will take you a while to realize. So, while you are living in these times, remember there are only so many of them. And when they are gone, you will yearn for just one more day of them, for one last time. And the author of that is unknown. I just think that's so powerful that it's a lovely way yeah. to name things. It's a tearjerker. <laughs> I'm gathering myself since I have uh, a son who will be leaving my home soon. So. <laughs> I send that to people when they tell me, oh, I just had a kid. Oh, it's hell, man. It's, you know, it's really hard. I'm not getting any sleep when I go, yeah. Think about this. There's only so many times you'll change a nappy. There's only so many times you'll make a bottle. There's only so many times they'll hold your hand. And now I cherish it when my son reaches for my hand or bedtime at nighttime is my favorite part of day, reading him a story at bedtime. It changed my perspective. And I think this is something that you really want to impart in this chapter on awareness and gratitude. 
in an hour, we can't talk through every chapter. So we're moving from part one to part two. And and the first chapter of part two is awareness. And the main point of that is to be aware of the value of your time, which is exactly what that poem illustrates. And I'm sensitive as a parent to not pretend that a person who is enormously sleep deprived and their children are screaming all hours of the night can maintain this perfect space of awareness and appreciation and anchor always into the idea of the last time. And I realize that's not completely realistic, but there is a really important opportunity in our lives to decide how we value time, how we value moments. And oftentimes it is the awareness of how fleeting they are, how temporary they are that ultimately anchors us into enjoying them. I have the enormous joy to have my grandmother, one grandparent still living, and she's in her upper 80s and um, still quite healthy. And every time I see her, there is always this what can sound morbid, but but feeling that this might actually be the last time I see you. It, it Every interaction might be. And then there's another and then there's another. But I don't want to lose sight of the possibility that it may very well be the last time. And so I don't want to have spent it texting or or worried about something at work or doing something where I didn't really see you and I didn't really connect with you. Even if I think I'm going to see you tomorrow, sometimes when she comes and visits, she's there for three or four days. So in theory, I should see you tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think it's easy to do when people are ill. It's easier to do when people are old. It's much, much harder to do when you are just go having a routine day. You're just getting up and going to work and getting these kids out if you have children or seeing your friends. Either way, there's an appreciation for the moments, for the time. There's an appreciation I can have for the fact that this might be the last time I get to speak about this book or, or spend time with an audience that's listening, that changes the experience quite dramatically. And so that chapter and that poem, frankly, I'm still a little emotionally stirred up. (laughs) It's really meant to bring those points home. It really helped your chapter on this intertwined with the gratitude chapter. And I was laughing when you admit this, and I do this as well. I usually skip the exercises in the books. But you ask us to do this awareness one. You're, you set, you call this out in the book, which is kind of amusing. You say, look, I skipped these exercises too. But if you do any in the book, do this one. And I'd love if you shared this exercise to our audience, the awareness list of names exercise. Yes. So this is an exercise that takes quite a bit of time. It's not a, let me just sit down and spend 20 minutes. So you can get started in that way. What you're meant to do is start a list of anybody that's impacted your life in a favorable way, in any way. And so obviously in the beginning, you'll have what I'll call the biggies. Um, You know, I might have my parents or my grandparents, teachers, people that I knew well that had dramatic impacts on my life. Eventually, you start getting to smaller interactions. and, and, And I want you to. I want you to carry it around with you every time someone pops in your head, Um, When you think, oh, the person who served me lunch in third grade and and, and said that nice thing about my hair that made me feel better. I mean, you want the most obscure memories and interactions that you can bring to mind. Um, That's the second phase. 
The, the, the third phase is to start to get to things that add value and the idea that people actually work on them. So if there's a show you love, you want to jot down the producers, uh, you want to see if you can find their names. Um, the producers, the writers, uh, if there's a product that you just love, think about the supply chain person, write down whoever whoever gets this to my country or my city, whoever created it, who designed the bottle because it's beautiful and I love it, um, winemakers, uh, chefs, all kinds of things. Um, and there's a long list to help uh, poke ideas perhaps. Um, but the point is to have as long of a list as you possibly can. You can even choose to keep this exercise going for months, years, the rest of your life, if you wanted. Every time something you realize someone's had an impact on me, jotting it down. And I think I said this in the exercise. You may think that now that I've explained it to you, you've taken in the power of it, but that is absolutely not true. This is an exercise that you have to actually do to fully appreciate the magnitude of a human life. There is something miraculous that occurs um, when you start getting when you're over 100 or more and you're still grabbing names and you're still seeing and you're starting to notice that the person at the drugstore had an impact on you, that the person at Chipotle had an impact on you. When you start moving in your spaces and being oriented towards capturing these moments, capturing these ideas, bringing up these memories. Um, in addition to obviously the gratitude it cultivates, um, it creates an awareness of the power of life that is incredibly important as you, as you continue to chart your path, as you continue to think about what do I want the work of my life to be and um, what's important and how many different ways can I actually add value that has meaning and purpose to me? And so if you don't do any other exercise in the book, which I said, <laughs> please do this one. Okay. And you mentioned purpose there because I've glossed over so much. There's so much in the book and it's a really, really great read. And I really, really enjoyed it. But I'm going to skip ahead to purpose because we just won't have time. And you mentioned that it can be revealed to us from the darkest moments we have or the biggest challenges we have that they're often given to us as a gift and they can become our superpower in the future. And you share a story here, and I hope you wouldn't mind sharing it, the story of the 17-year-old Courtney that faced a real challenge. Yes, yes. And I want to be, before I even jump into this, super clear. I don't believe that bad things happen to us so that they turn good. Bad things that happen, particularly traumatic things that happen, are just that and bad. But I think... There is an opportunity sometime in our pain, which has certainly been true in my life. So when I was 17, I thought I was just sad and unhappy, but ultimately I was dealing with a serious bout of depression. And one night I tried to take my life. And so I, I tell the story in more detail in the book, but ultimately I had to be rushed to the hospital and I managed to live, which has always been a... I don't know that I have the right words for it even now, but it has always created a why am I here dynamic in my head. I certainly have experienced a ton of people who have uh, lost their battles with depression, friends of mine. I've also been around family members who have lost people from depression and, uh, and suicide. And I've 
carried that baggage and in some ways tried to put it away because it, it ends up being a thing. I was 17 and now I'm in my 40s. So it's a thing people don't know about me. But in actually spending time with the pain and actually dragging out what was that and why and what, how do I feel about it and the dynamic that I ultimately see that my life's purpose is linked to that episode. As terrible as it is and as hard as it is to spend time in it, in spending time in it, it's helped me realize that people who are hopeless, people who really don't see their value, I am uniquely drawn to them. It, it hasn't led me to have a career in suicide support. I'm not, not a mental health professional, at least not, it's not technically, <laughs> but it has led me to a career that I find uniquely fulfilling because I am addressing a problem that, that I've experienced, that I understand in a unique way and, and that I have an enormous amount of compassion for. Um, and so that chapter welcomes people if they feel ready. Obviously, trauma can be serious um, to spend some time in their pain. And it doesn't need to be as significant as mine. It may be more significant, but um, oftentimes people have issues where they were neglected or just parents weren't as present or just other pains um, that they don't deem as significant as the story I just told, but it causes them significant pain. And if that is you, spending some time with that story may actually have some insights. Um, obviously, the chapter gets into how to do that more, but it may actually have some insight into where you should go next from a work perspective. It's beautiful. And you, you phrase it and reframe that pain very, very well. There's a beautiful French saying I love from the movie La Haine, which is hatred in French. And it goes like this, l'important n'est pas la chute, c'est le which means the importance is on the landing, not the fall. And it's how you react mm -hmm. to things that really define you, how you go forward and how you push forward. And that's easily said and really difficult to do. But I am so glad you went through that experience and, and shared it with us because it's a fantastic read. You share so much personal stories, but intertwine it so well with these brilliant beliefs that are great ways to live life. So finishing up, I just wanted to ask you two last questions. First one, very quickly, where can people find out more about you, the book, etc.? And the second is, if you had a final call to action for all of us listening, what is that? So the first is that, again, the book is called Working Whole, How to Unite Your Spiritual Beliefs and Your Work to Live Fulfilled. And you can find that um, on Amazon or anywhere that online books are sold. You can find more about me on my website, which is called simplyservice.org. Um, and I also write weekly for Forbes.com. So you can also find me and follow me there. And I would certainly appreciate if you did. And if there was one thing that I would leave people with, it's really back to what we talked about in the beginning about the bucket or the well. It's really back to the idea that a focus on these core beliefs or core values is going to yield you so much more fulfillment, joy, happiness, even frankly, traditional career growth and achievement usually, than just trying your best to wander around and, and try the next thing and the next thing. And so I would just encourage listeners to start there, to start with rooting yourself and anchoring yourself in your beliefs and let your work be manifested from it. 
author of Working Whole, How to Unite Your Spiritual Beliefs and Your Work to Live Fulfilled. Courtney Whitehead, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.